This is the Brewer to Brewer podcast from All About Beer, a conversation that goes beyond the brew house and into topics that matter to brewing professionals and curious beer drinkers. Visit allaboutbeer.com and follow on social media. And to support journalism in the beer space, check out patreon.com slash allaboutbeer. I'm Ben Edmonds of Breakside Brewery, and this week, I'm so glad to be talking with my friend Sean Yasaki of Noble Beast Brewing. We'll get into it in just a moment, but first, this message. First Tea is a proud sponsor of the Brewer to Brewer podcast. They've been working with brewers on a wide range of ingredients and delicious beers. First Tea combines the flexibility of order sizes with the experience you need to create innovative and successful tea beers. They get you the most direct from farm tea selection, so you are working with flavorful and consistent products. You can find more about First Tea's collaborations with brewers and tea ingredients by visiting blog.firsttea.com. That's blog.f-i-r-s-d-t-e-a.com. Sean, it's so good to see you, man. I feel like uh, it's been many months. Yeah, yeah. I'm, uh, I'm honored to, to be on episode. Is this, is this going to be seven or eight? I think this is seven. Seven, yeah. So it's, it's a who's who uh, on the brewing world and, and me. So I'm excited about that. Well, I'm excited we get to chat and catch up a little bit for an hour, even though it's uh, in a, a uh, maybe not having a beer in person, but we're having a metaphorical beer together, right? <clears throat> Absolutely. Um, well, let's jump into it. I have a handful of questions for you. Um, and I think, you know, First off, let's just talk about who you are and uh, how you came to be where you're at in the beer industry today. So do you want to give kind of your, uh, a little bit of your beer bio here? Yeah. So, um, you know, I started off uh, doing the typical homebrew thing, but honestly, I mean, I, I don't think I even brewed 10 batches of homebrew. Um, I was, uh, I had graduated college and I had a degree in entrepreneurship, was uh, throughout college kind of um, assisting as a, as a wedding photographer. And, you know, I was kind of building up my own little um, business for that. And uh, I was waiting tables at Fatheads. Um, this was their first brewery in uh, North Olmsted. So, you know, it kind of just... Um, yeah, doing, doing the server thing um, and working on the weekends. And, you know, I expressed, uh, I kind of know Matt Cole, who's, who's the, you know, one of the owners and yep. the brewmaster at Fatheads and expressed to him like, hey, I want to try this like homebrewing, you know? And um, he like graciously was like, oh man, let me, uh, let me help you out and get a kit. So, he, you know, I paid for it, but he got me like the wholesale deal on a, two buckets and you know the little red capper and a, yeah. a tiny little like five page booklet on how to brew extract beer uh-huh. and i'm like reading the little booklet with some pictures in it i'm like oh this is easy <laughs> super super simple you know they couldn't have uh, boiled that down anymore so i uh you know I, I i did some of that and um i think uh for this is all like under the assumption that you know these are your first homebrew batches i think they were actually pretty decent for first homebrew batches that's not saying much by uh any of our standards now but you know whatever bottle condition and bring them in and um you get some some compliments i guess from uh the brew staff over at, at fatheads and um i end up uh 
leaving. This is this is you know outside of Cleveland, Ohio. That's where where I'm from and where Noble Beast is. And um, you know, I moved to Philadelphia for about two years, and um, I just kind of wanted to get out of Cleveland. There wasn't um, some big job opportunity there. A bunch of my friends were from that area, so uh, you know, I was moving to a city where where I had a lot of friends, and um, I was building up a, a wedding photography business there. It was going well, but I kind of kept getting more and more into beer. Um, not even so much brewing. I didn't really uh, brew in our little apartment out there, but just getting into um, kind of the craft beer scene. And I guess this would have been like 2011. Uh, what think? were some of the... No, like, 2010, 2010. In Philly at that time, what were some of the kind of formative beer experience, either beers or places or that, that you kind of remember from that time um you know i i have really fond memories of philadelphia beer week i think that's back when beer weeks were really in their heyday um bouncing around you know such a especially at that age you know i was probably 22 23 and um it was just super exciting like you're always just kind of like learning something new experiencing (laughs) some new beer trying some new crazy beer style that you know you've never even heard of um so bouncing around all those breweries out there. And at that time there weren't, you know, that many, um, I can really only think of like a, a handful. Um, I remember, uh, running into Sam Caligioni at some event and he was, he had quite a few beers and, and it was this like 22 year old kid. I was super excited to talk to him. And like, I thought that was like the coolest thing in the world. It was like a, I don't know, a two, you know, two minute conversation or something yeah. like that, but he was super friendly and gracious with his time. Um, yeah. So anyway, like, you know, living out there and then coming home to, to see family, you know, holidays and stuff. I remember coming home for Easter and I would, I would just kind of pop into Fatheads and kind of keep in touch, you know, um, with, with Matt Cole over there. And, uh, in the back of my head, I've been thinking like, like how, how does one actually get into, into brewing beer? So my dad's a photographer and he, you know, he went to college for it, but he'll be the first to tell you you know, this is not something you need a degree for and you will learn just as much in your first six months on the job. So I've kind of always, I guess, had that idea in the back of my head that that's certainly a, you know, a possibility in different careers, right? And so with that kind of in mind, I don't even know if I had that in mind, but, you know, I approached Matt. I was like, hey, what, um, you know, you, you think you think brewers should like go to school and like get a degree? And he, he told me um, a lot of great brewers have schooling and a lot don't. And then offered me a job on the spot. And I was kind of like blown away, you know, I was like, wasn't really expecting that or asking for that. Yeah. Um, so I thought about it and, and went for it. And I, I think it was probably another four five, six months before I moved back home to Cleveland um, to take that position, which was just super entry level brew pub spot. Um, but at the time it was kind of like a, I felt like this dream job just appeared and fell in my lap. Uh, so went for it. And um you know, I was at that pub for two and a half years and I, I don't think I could have asked for a better learning experience. Like one at that time, and I mean, not even just at that time, but Fatheads is making some world-class beers and mm-hmm. they were racking up a lot of great medals at that time, still are. And, um, you know, just being in that pub environment where, you know, it's me and two other guys, you're, you're learning 
a little bit of everything from cleaning the draft lines to, uh, you know, cellaring to brewing to just kind of seeing everything that goes on behind the scenes and running a small brewery. Um, so, you know, I, I think I did, I did well there and kind of, um, that was in the beginning of their expansion, uh, mm -hmm. to start building a, a, their first production facility. So I never really had a desire to, to move over to that spot. Um, it's just never been what kind of excites me about beer. I just, I just like it on that small scale. I like it, um, being part of the pub experience where you're drinking it with the customers for a few weeks and you didn't just spend a few weeks making a beer and then it vanishes out the door, never to be seen again. Right. Um, so I always wanted to kind of stay there. Um, but I also got to kind of be a little involved in, in the building of a production brewery and kind of see what went into that and the design. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, that was, um, that was my first brewing gig. That's great. Um, and so we'll talk a little bit about some of the, the history between, uh, Fatheads <laughs> and, and Noel Beast later on. Um, but I think that like in this, I think sometimes, and I, I catch myself doing this when I tell like a, my beer biography, I, I forget sometimes to talk about the moment that I fell in love and realized that this is, I wanted to make a career out of this, that I want to do that. So for you, I mean, it's, it's one thing to talk about like the, you know, first job, but at what point, whether that was before the first job, during it, sometime later on, when did you realize that, that brewing as a career was for you? That, that was definitely in, in that Philadelphia stint that I did. Yeah. Um, you know, just kind of like my friend group there, we, we just loved going out to all these different beer bars. And I'm, I could be totally wrong about this, but I feel like there was only maybe three or four breweries in the city at that, at that time. time. Yeah. Yards um, would have been around, right? And uh, Yards, Nodding Head, uh, there's Philadelphia Brewing right, Company, yeah. there's Maniunk Brewing Company. Actually, you know, there, there'd be more, probably like six or seven or something. Yeah. I'm probably forgetting some. Um, but, but lots of great, you know, beer bars and, you know, Monk's Cafe. Um, I still feel like having a, a fresh or vol was like this kind of like eye opening experience. And I've, yet to have another fresh or vol. Um, but just kind of exploring all of that. And like, we were just kind of obsessed with like trying all these new things. And it, was, it you know, it wasn't even that long ago. I'm sure a lot of uh, people have been doing this longer than me would roll their eyes, but it just seemed like such a different time in, in craft beer. I think that sometimes those like early, those formative moments where your enthusiasm level is super high, right? The it kind of <clears throat> curiosity is really high. Everything's new is so formative to so many people. And it's not necessarily, you know, it doesn't really matter whether that happened in the 90s, the aughts, the teens, you know, it's, yeah, it's always fun to hear people's kind of like what hooked them in. So as you, as you move forward then into professional brewing, um, and, you know, not just at the, at the time, but now up through today, uh, what have been kind of some of the, the people or the places or the uh, beers that have, have been the biggest influences to you? You know, what are, what are you, who are you influenced by and what are you influenced by? Um, and I'm sure Fathead is a large part of that, but uh, if you want to talk about them, but also maybe some of the stuff outside of the just career trajectory that's mm -hmm. influenced you. Well, I absolutely would start with that experience of fatheads. Um, 
it definitely, you know, kind of found my love for lagers and, and German beers and European beers um, there. That's definitely, a, you know, coming from Matt. Um, I'd say outside of that, like my, my international travels have been fairly limited, but going over to Germany and just doing a, I can't remember, you know, we were probably there for like 12 days, just doing a big circle around the whole country, popping into like all the, you know, the major beer cities. Mm -hmm. Um, that's influenced a lot of, you know, what, uh, you know, I brew here at Noble Beast. Um, you know, other than that, I, I, it's definitely just even just traveling in general, uh, even in the, in the U S you know, you get so kind of used to drinking, uh, your friends beers and then the beers being brewed in your city. And then you, you know, you go out somewhere else and like, there's always some good eye opening moments where you, you're just trying something new and like, Oh man, I gotta, I gotta figure out how to do this. I gotta take this back home and try and, you know, yeah. try something new like this. Yeah. That's for me personally been the hardest part of the pandemic. I mean, at a professional level is that to not have had that over the last two to three years, as much as the you know preceding decade, it, it does, you end up kind of being in your own echo chamber sometimes, and it can be uh, hard to find those sources of creativity. Mm-hmm. Introduce us to Noble Beast a little bit. Um, I imagine a lot of folks who are listening to this won't have been to the pub, um, may not be familiar with your beers. So maybe just talk a little bit about the beer program. Um, someone walks into Noble Beast today. What are they? What are they going to find? What would they expect to find? <clears throat> well, we're uh, we're in downtown Cleveland. We're right on kind of the outskirts of downtown, so it's a unique area in that there's nothing else really around us. So it's not like you're in the heart of the city. Um, you know, it's it's easy to get to. It's it's kind of a weird spot um, where you know going going into the center of downtown can sometimes be like a a trip, you know, mm-hmm. parking is difficult, stuff like that. So, so we kind of have this interesting vibe where it's like this neighborhood bar that's not really in a neighborhood. Um, yeah. But we've got great regulars and people come here from, you know, all over the city, like it is their, their neighborhood bar, or maybe it's just a stop after work. Um, but in a lot of ways, it's the classic kind of brew pub model. Um, that's not exactly how we went into it, but it's certainly where it's taken us. Yeah. Um, you know, I guess kind of comparing some of my, my previous experiences, like at Fatheads, it's this massive restaurant that does a ton of food, has multiple server stations and managers walking around, just kind of staring at people type of thing, you know? And so like, <laughs> that that's not, not what I wanted to do at all. Like run this crazy, food service operation yeah and and then after that which um you alluded we'll get to like when i was at platform it's kind of the opposite where we're like doing food trucks and it's the pure taproom model yeah and i don't think that really works in our city and we'd be pretty dead um around dinner hours so i was like where's where's the happy medium here and that's what we really shot for and i think i think it's worked out really well so yeah i mean getting back to like what is noble beast it's a 10 barrel um brew pub kind of has that tap room feel but we still have a great kitchen uh one of my business partners uh james you know he's our chef he's a fine dining background so uh, almost everything we buy is you know locally produced and sourced from you know farms where the farmers themselves are bringing everything in or he's going out to the farmers markets Uh, our kitchen staff's super talented it's a lot of people with a fine dining background that are kind of burnt out on that 
and are enjoying, you know, still stretching their muscles and using all their skills, but just in a, in a much, you know, lower key environment. Um, we brew a pretty wide variety of beer. I don't try and get too pigeonholed. Um, I love, you know, lighter European styles. We do a lot of lagers. I think we have four on right now. We only have um, 13 taps. I intentionally try and keep it on the low end so we can turn through beer and keep things fresh. Um, so at the moment, you know, um, we've got our, our house IPA on evil motives, which is, um, I don't know, we'll call it like a mid coast IPA. It's not yeah. it's probably not West coast by your definitions, but it's certainly still clear <laughs> and, and bitter and, um, you know, hot forward and crisp. Uh, you know, there's a hazy, I've got a, a wet hopped alt beer. We just tapped a smoked Hellas today that, I'm drinking right now that I'm super excited about. Uh, there's another regular Hellas on. There's an Oktoberfest, um, a little uh, kind of Belgian style grisette. Uh, what else we got going over there? I think that I, I asked that question part because I, I really do, and I'm not, I'm not just blowing hot air up your ass here. I think you have one of the most diverse and eclectic tap lists of any brewery I've walked into in the last five, six years. And it seems when I follow you guys on social media and I see what you guys are putting out, I, 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 the commitment to the wide range of beers, to the obscure, the historical, the fun is, is really wide. Where do you think that all comes from for you? Is that, is that also just kind of your background in at Fatheads or is that, uh, there's something else that drives that? No, I think, I think that's just, I guess my, my curiosity and my preference to always kind of, uh, drinking something new but still that's grounded in history you know we don't we don't dabble too much in um you know the ultra trendy styles um i'm certainly curious about them and we will make them but you know there's not not very many pastry stouts kettle sours um or even you know hazy ipas on uh so my, my philosophy is like it's kind of like uh the customer really only wants a very narrow set of things, right? They want their IPA and maybe a lighter style, but it's like, I don't want to just fill my tap list with all these things. So I'd rather like brew fun, interesting things to, to introduce people to. And basically like my thinking is how can I trick people into drinking these? Because it's not what they're going to go to, right? They're going to, they're yeah. going to go straight to the IPA. Like, you know, how many times someone just sat down and be like, what's your IPA? Um, so how can I sell a wet hopped alt beer? How can I sell a three and a half percent grisette? Um, and you know, a lot of that comes down to like, what I think is effective is the story behind it and the presentation. So we have different glassware for almost every one of our styles. Um, and you know, I think that's, that's unique. And when people look around like, Oh, what's that beer? And they might ask about it or they try and figure it out. Um, or just telling the, the story behind it. Like most, most people who, you know, are into to drinking craft beer, they, they like the story behind it. They like the, the history. Uh, don't overwhelm them with it or make it too long, but, you know, just putting on this, um, the smoked Hellas and like explaining to people that like, you know, in the time past, like most beers were, were all kind of smoky just because we didn't have indirect heat and the killing was, you know, over open flame. Um, and then people are like, oh, they understand it. And then it's interesting to them and they can figure out a way to enjoy it. Yeah. Do you th What role do you think food plays in all of that and being able to, to pair? 
You know, that I would say that's actually something that we're not very good at, that I should probably invest more, more time into. We don't have any, um, you know, preparing suggestions on the menu. Sometimes I do when I'm releasing a beer or anything, but it's not something we do consistently very well. Yeah. So I say here that it's not, not really driving uh, a whole lot. The kitchen does use our beer, you know, in the recipes a lot. Yeah. But as far as like maybe educating a consumer or trying to get them excited about a pairing, it's probably a, a shortcoming of ours. Do you think that the restaurant setting encourages more experimentation on the consumer part than a tap room? Is there something, um, that do you do you think that it's really just comes down to storytelling and service um yeah yeah i would say that it, that it does you know if you read through our our food menu um you know unless you're you really know what you're talking about you're going to come across a whole bunch of stuff that you have no idea what it is i mean that's that's me on a regular basis when i'm like <laughs> putting all these things on instagram i'm like guys like what the heck is this thing you know it's like some that's what I'm saying. Like our, our, our staff's really talented and we give them a lot of freedom to kind of pursue what they're interested in. So they're constantly kind of coming up with new things. Um, so I, I guess from a consumer perspective, if you know what you're getting into at, at Noble Beast, there's going to be um, certainly an opportunity to try something you've never heard of or kind of get something that's out of the ordinary. Whether that be food or, or food, food beer. or beer. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about some of the projects, whether, you know, or new beers or, or uh, existing beers that you've been really excited about lately that you've been working on. What's, what's been uh, stimulating you create, creative, uh, creatively? Um, I was real pumped about this alt beer. We, we, we tapped that um, a couple of weeks ago. But uh, so when we first opened up, you know, I had this idea of just going to have a limited kind of core selection of beers to, to keep on tap like all the time. And a Kolsch and an Altbeer were were two of those three, with you know IPA being the third. And um, I guess over time, like uh, Alt just the sales just really started lagging on it. Um, so it's kind of like this this just isn't really working, even though I'm trying to make it work. Yeah. So pulled Alt out of um, standard rotation, and we I might make it once or twice a year. And um, it's one of those things where like people still keep bugging me to make it, but it's the the 10 people who aren't going to, you know, help you sell 10 barrels of alt beer. So in my head, I was thinking, yeah, yeah, we'll bring it back in the fall. I was like, Oh, we should do a wet hop one. And, um, kind of opportunity came up to work with a local farm, um, barn talk hops that actually has, a some proprietary varietals that they've developed. And I just think that's pretty cool for like little, little, uh, Ohio's, you know, hop economy which is certainly not very substantial that they're working yeah. on some proprietary things are they breeding so, themselves is that the they have their own breeding program yeah it's certainly cool. i'm sure does not you know rival some of the the breeding programs out west but yeah in any case i think it's really neat and interesting and That's these hops cool. are called edishem and they have just this uh, this really great kind of floral character to them so so the, the wet hop I'm, I'm super excited about um, we're getting close to packaging a uh, second release of uh, a fooder aged Flemish red. That is, uh, tasting really nice. This is a, um, a Solera project. Um, it's been in there a while now. I mean, when we first released the first release, it was in Oak for two years and that beer just takes so long to mature. 
um, it's, it's a pretty, pretty standard, you know, goes in a stainless fermented kind of an English ale and just just boring as could be when you put it into the wood. Um, and it just takes so long to, to come around, but it's so rewarding because I, I just think it's, I think it's a fantastic style of beer. It's super complex and I, and I love it. And so I'm pretty happy with this one. Um, our first one being in like a new fooder, uh, while delicious was, was too oaky. It was just that oak really just kind of popped out at, um, out of the aroma at you. So this is mellowed out a little bit, certainly getting some of that nicer oxidative notes. Um, yeah, so that's in the works. Um, to, t- to talk just a little bit more about the, the wood aging program that you guys have. I mean, I think it's worth saying to anyone who uh, hasn't been, if you walk into Noel Beast for a small, small brewery and, and brew pub, first thing you see when you walk in the door is, is two fooders, um, which is pretty cool and very rare given the limited real estate that you guys have. And you've done some really creative things, not just on the Flanders red side, but uh, with kind of Solera aging, your barley wine. Do you want to talk about that project at all? Yeah, so um, <clears throat> that one's called We Don't Rat, We Don't Run. And it's, uh, it's, it's a big English style barley wine. Each release has been a little bit different, but they've hovered around 15% ABV. And that first one was aged a year. And then we pulled out 80% and put a fresh batch in, you know, obviously leaving that 20% behind. So then uh, we've already on a third release. So the third release had, you know, blends of one, two and three year aged beer um, going on, on the fourth release. And, um, packaged up in tiny little 250 mil bottles, little champagne bottles. This is obviously totally inspired by Thomas Hardy, um, which has those small bottles. And, you know, by the time you even like find them, uh, they're already like seven or eight years old. And I think they say on there, you can age it up to 20 years, not 25. Um, So ours says that, on there. you know, like (laughs) uh, you can age this for up to, we'll improve if kept cool. And, um, for 25 years. So we'll, we'll see if anybody comes back and wants their money back, but uh, they've been going really well so far. It's a, it's a fun project. Yeah. I, uh, I think I shot you some texts a couple months ago when we had opened a couple of those that Dylan, one of our brewers had brought back last time he was out visiting Cleveland. And uh, I mean, they were beautiful, beautiful beers and they're really distinct. I mean, I think that anyone who's uh, wonders about kind of the diversity that can come from that type of program and the unity uh, from Solera aging. I mean, the, the beers were real distinct. Uh, do you aim for diversity or do you aim for kind of typicity within that? Or is it, does it depend? Um, no. And then when we're, we're changing the, the grain bill slightly every year, <clears throat> um, not, nothing major on that. end. I kind of want the, at least the, the color to change a little bit as it, as it moves on. Um, I guess at least for me, you know, I don't have a ton of experience fermenting kind of at, at that higher um, ABV and, and gravity. Mm-hmm. So it's been a little bit of a learning experience um, on how do we get, you know, really good healthy fermentations above 15%. So, so those have kind of been all over the places. We tried different things and see what works. Um, so like uh, last year's release, like that one that you're referencing, that one did not attenuate um you know, as much as some of the other ones. So it's yeah. certainly a lot sweeter and fuller. And it, you know, for me, I kind of, I always gravitate towards the drier, well attenuated beer. So I was like, ah, this is like, 
I screwed this one up. And then, you know, but of course everybody loves like the sweet uh, beer. Um, so then this current batch that's in there now is maybe the opposite. It's, it's like, it's too attenuated. And that one's pushing like six, it's over 16%. It's very high ABV. alcohol, yeah. Yeah, so as, as it goes on, you know, each one's different and we'll keep kind of fine tuning it, probably come somewhere back to the middle of all these experiments. Is it just a single batch that's going in there each year on top of the uh, residuals from, from previous years, the 20%? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, so it's a, each fooder is 10 barrels, so. How long, so this year's batch will be, when's, when will that be released? So the releases are kind of on our anniversary, so like Memorial Day. Gotcha. So it's brew, so it spends the year in and then comes out the following Memorial yeah. Day. Is that the idea? It's great. Yeah. Very cool. Well, we're going to take a short break for this message and then come right back for more of this conversation with Sean Yasaki of Noble Beast Brewing Company. First Tea is a proud sponsor of the Brewer to Brewer podcast. They've been working with brewers on a wide range of ingredients and delicious beers. First Tea combines the flexibility of order sizes with the experience you need to create innovative and successful tea beers. They get you the most direct from farm tea selection, so you are working with flavorful and consistent products. You can find more about First Tea's collaborations with brewers and tea ingredients by visiting blog.firsttea.com. That's blog.firsttea.com. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, Sean, let's uh, let's talk about the intermediate years here a little bit between uh, between Fatheads and and Noble Beast. Um, for those who don't know, you were the uh, I believe the original brewmaster at Platform Brewing. Is that right? Yes. Um, you know, I, I spent some time this weekend uh, stalking you on on Instagram, going doing the deep dive to the old years, and clearly that was a there's a lot to interpret and. Um, it was a, <clears throat> from those years, but it was obviously a passion project uh, for you, even though it was something that didn't ultimately work out as planned. So how do you look back on your role and time there and how did it, did it influence what you're doing today at Noble Beast? Yeah, um, <clears throat> it certainly influenced a lot of things. And as you said, it, you know, it didn't work out, but I don't regret those experiences at all because because what I learned and you know how I've able to you know I, I guess you know those experience how they influence and will be into the other successes that they led to so I, I guess to go back to like the beginning of that you know I spent those two and a half years at um, at Fatheads mm-hmm. and that's not um that's not terribly long to to be in the industry to to be branching out and starting you know a brand new brewery where you're running the brewing show and, you know, a co-owner. Um, but thankfully um, those were really good years of Fatheads uh, as far as preparing me to, to run a brewery. Um, so yeah, this, this opportunity comes up to, uh, to start something new. Um, two other guys were kind of um, already hatching a bit of a plan. So I, I came on after that, but it was still fairly early. You know, there was, there was not a name yet for this, for platform. And, and that name came from uh, providing this platform to like aspiring brewers. So it was supposed to be kind of this pilot program where homebrewers who are interested in, you know, opening up their own place could kind of come in and 
brew with me, learn a little bit about, you know, just the basics on how all this, you know, much larger scale equipment works, work with some of the other business partners on, you know, the business side of things. And uh, it was supposed to be kind of this launching point that only went through maybe two iterations. And I think uh, my other partners learned it wasn't going to make them the money that they thought it was going to make or so it was not worth the time. So that, um, that program kind of went, went by the wayside fairly yeah. quickly, but you know, in the beginning, uh, I thought it was this, this dream job, right. I was, I was pretty young, uh, 20, I don't know, 20, 25 or, yeah. or something at the time. So certainly coming in, um, pretty naive on, on a lot of things. And, uh, I thought we had this kind of dream team pulled together to pull this off. And, uh, man, it, it, it didn't take long for me to realize that I wasn't going to be around at platform long-term we opened up uh it was july 4th 2014 and by that fall i already knew like my time was going to be limited there and um it just didn't really get along um on a personal or a philosophical you know level with one of the other partners and um just just a lot of the typical stuff where I'm sure a lot of brewers are, are even still dealing with where somebody comes to you and says like, Oh, Hey, we, uh, we're going to do this. We promised this company. We're going to have this beer ready on this day. And it's like, Oh, what? That's a, it's 10 days away or something like just, <laughs> yeah. kind of just out, out of touch with, with what actually is going on in the brewery and what it takes. And, um, there was just a lot of, uh, a lot of mismanagement of, of our staff, People were not treated the right way. Vendors were not treated the right way. People were not paid intentionally on the you know, right way. And it was just like, this is not a place where where I can be long-term. I'm a pretty laid back, pretty easygoing guy. And man, I was just like, my blood was boiling on way too regular of a schedule. Um, I remember in the beginning, man, I was working. Uh, we started off as like a three and a half barrel. Yeah, system in there eventually like installed a 10 barrel system when i was there um but i even i even got like shingles from the stress and at one point i fell down the stairs in my own house because my legs just like gave out from like triple brewing on three and a half barrel systems by myself and just kind of like it was just like too much um Wow. Which actually that was like, that was kind of in the very beginning. So not necessarily like this big driving reason on why I left, you know, it was yeah. just, um, yeah, it was, uh, so how have those, how have experience. those, those experiences made you a better manager and business owner and brewer now that you have your own place, you know, eight, nine years later? Um, Man, it's, 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 it's in so many different ways. And it was a great lesson on, you know, what not to do in, in so many ways. And mm -hmm. it's not even a lesson that like I needed to have, right. Most people don't need to have these like huge lessons and what not to do. Um, <laughs> yeah. You, you kind of just know, don't be a dick, don't be an asshole. Like that's not a lesson that I needed. Um, but as far as like designing the brewery, you know, like, I really approached Noble Beast in like a, a thoughtful way of like, because in the beginning it was just me doing all the brewing, all the cellar and everything like that. So it was like, how can I 
make this as as simple and as easy to use as possible for still being a full manual, you know, 10 barrel setup. Um, mm -hmm. Just simple things like, you know, I had a little custom stand fabricated for our mill. So I'm not lifting grain bags above my head or climbing a ladder or even going up two steps. It's just, it's just right there, you know, as low to the ground as possible. Um, just simple things like that to, to reduce, um, you know, the amount of labor and the, and the chance of wearing yourself out or injuries. Um, and, uh, you know, as I alluded to earlier with the, the previous experience at Fatheads, where it's just kind of like this insane restaurant operation and the opposite being platform that had, um, you know, the hassle of trying to get food trucks in and in Cleveland in our weather, it's just, it's just not really a culture that, that works, uh, here. So it's like food was always, um, a super important part of, you know, our concept. I was like, basically, like, how, how can we sell the most amount of beer and be as profitable as possible, not to make as much money as possible, but to just do what I want to do in the brewery and be able to afford it? You know, I mean, it's pretty easy to, to open up a brewery and come to the quick realization that, like, this is a lot harder of a business to make work. And we can, mm -hmm. you know, barely pay to do this and this and this type of thing. So, um, you know, food was always, uh, and, and really good food was always a pretty important part of, you know, our concept. Let's, uh, let's change kind of, uh, topics here and, and talk a little bit about your interests adjacent to brewing and things like that. Uh, but also tie it back, you know, you, you, so, you're a, you were a photographer. Um, I think that's a so you know a, a very rare previous career to brewing. <laughs> um, so you're a photographer before before becoming a brewer. It sounds like that was a family profession and trade in some ways. Does that background still influence you at all in your work today? Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm sure it does because I kind of visually I think I approach things very differently. Um, I'm. I guess it does, you know, I've never really thought about it this way, but like I'm obsessed with, with light and like the color temperature of light. And that, that is absolutely like a, a photography thing. Um, yeah. But like, I, I hate like when the color temperature is wrong and lights in certain parts, it's, you know, of, of building, you know, like you should have warm incandescent lights. That's a, uh, you know, plugged into your wall and like natural light coming in. So Sarbury has, um, you know, a big skylight right in the middle of it um, with a bunch of hanging plants, big glass garage doors in the front and the back. So, so, so the building is an old, you know, like steel warehouse. So it's this mm -hmm. big brick box, right? Pretty dark and dingy, you know, we got a hold of it. Um, so bringing in, you know, light was really important. And it just the, the overall aesthetics of the interior, which has been super organic. And like, you know, we didn't, we didn't have an interior designer or anything like that. It was like when we opened up as Spartan, I look back at those old photos, it's like, wow, how did we even like open the doors and let people inside? But everything is just kind of grown by like, you know how it is in like bars. Like it just like shits just all over the walls now and like, like little tchotchkes and stuff like that. Um, but I think that's a, that's a really important part of a successful, you know, pub and bar is just um, that warm inviting atmosphere. Um, so I definitely 
you know, pay a lot of attention to, to those type of things. And I think obviously with, with beer, we, the first experience is visual. So if the beer does not look visually appealing, uh, it's already clouded your judgment of how it's going to taste and smell and, and the overall experience. So from, from glassware and presentation, that's super important. Um, you know, while I don't really do any professional photography anymore, it's been a lot of fun to still do all of our social media and stuff. And it gives me a reason to spend money on nice cameras and get new lenses, yeah. justify that as a business expense. Um, and I still get to kind of play around with that. So it's, it's a good creative outlet. I think in, it's, uh, Instagram culture, social media has been really impactful to craft beer in the last, you know, to all businesses, but uh, to craft beer, it's been a huge kind of shift change because there is so much emphasis put on um, presentation of beers, whether those beers be beautiful filtered lagers or smoothie sours, right? Um, can you talk a little bit about kind of how you view that, like the Instagram culture of beer and like what it means for breweries, whether that be breweries that you know, friends breweries, your own brewery, et cetera. And what, uh, what do you make of all of it when you see breweries get hyped on Instagram or breweries that uh, succeed despite not having a very good uh, visual culture around their beer? Um, man, I don't know that I'm even all that in tune with a lot of I, that culture, I guess you're saying. I, I find out about these things like super late. I'm always like, oh, what's this? And like, it's already like super popular and people are like waiting in line for it. Um, so I think like, you know, I guess we just always wanted to be like this tiny little like neighborhood pub in a weird spot of Cleveland, Ohio. So we, in a lot of ways, it's it's kind of an insular operation. Um, but uh, more more power to them. If people are getting excited about beer, then then there's certainly like that's a good thing. I know that can go kind of in the wrong direction a lot of times. Um, but if people are getting pumped up about weird smoothie sours and crazy like viscous stouts that you can't pour out of cans or something, um, it's better than people not talking about beer and people not drinking beer anymore because uh, that's you know so certainly a lot of uh, you know worries and, and and I guess threats to the beer market these days, but um. Yeah, yeah it's not a direction we go too much. Yeah, I think it's it's kind of, a, it may just be a, a any news is good news kind of a, a pr approach to thinking about like, you know, drumming up interest in, in our businesses and in our industry, right? Um, well, you, and, you know what happens anyway. All these people are going to go nuts over these beers. I mean, they're all going to just settle into drinking lager. That's what <laughs> happens to all the brewers anyway, right? You, get, you, yeah. you gravitate towards these big, strong styles, and then you're like, you know what, all right, I'm just give me that Pilsner. Yeah. So they'll come around. I mean, I feel very lucky. We're, you know, A, I, I don't do, I'm, I'm not super active on social media, kind of lurk sometimes, but um, also I'm just not, I'm a terrible photographer. Like I have no, no photographer's eyes. So I try not to post anything. And when I do, it usually looks horrible. But uh, I feel very, very lucky that our brewery doesn't, it kind of gets to make, pretty classic styles as well and doesn't have to play the uh in that we don't have to really work it work that side of our um 
marketing too much in terms of like trying to present like smoothie beers or really hype type beers uh, in order to draw in people through that single venue. That's not to say it's not important. It's just not um, something that we've had to do a ton of ourselves. Yeah, I, I, I feel fortunate in the same way. And like, I guess I don't want to like poop on those, those beers and breweries. And I no, know that's not what no. you're doing, but there's a lot of people who, who love a lot of brewers and breweries who love those beers and that's why they make them yeah. and they make them really well. But then there's also a lot of pressure for maybe breweries somewhere in the middle that at the end of the day, just kind of need to drum up sales and interest. And, and that's what I, I think, you know, you and, and I know we don't like, we don't need to do that. And I feel very fortunate it's for that. That's, yeah. it, it's a nice position to be in um, to kind of forge your own path and, and still be successful at it. hundred percent. Let's talk about what you like to do outside of work too. You know, running a brewery uh, and a business is, can be very, very time consuming. Um, so what do you do to get your mind off work and kind of stay mentally with it? Well, I got, uh, I got three little kids running around at home and, uh, and a great wife who runs this business with me. Um, so those are my two full-time jobs. So the, the fam and uh, keeping the business running. But uh, outside of that, um, you know, I like old motorcycles, wrenching on those. Um, we've always had, uh, an old motorcycle hanging in the brewery. So that's kind of wow. fun. We swap that in and out and it's hanging from some steel cables on the, out of the ceiling that the building department gave me a, an earful about before we had a architect come in and verify that our, our cable management design was in fact, you know, very safe. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, other than that, it's all the, the random way too expensive hobbies that I end up falling <laughs> into and over researching and spending too much money on. Yeah. I'm sure that also with, with the business and three kids right now, it's, uh, there's, personal time is limited, right? Personal time is very limited. Yeah. Um, how old are they? Uh, so our youngest is, um, 15 months. It was our first girl. Uh, and then two boys that, uh, just turned four and almost seven. Gosh. Yeah. That, uh, I don't have kids and I can't, but I, I I'm like, my heart is racing at the thought of having three children between <laughs> ages seven and 15 months, you know, at some point you're just, become very accustomed to the chaos and it's no longer chaos yeah um, but it's been fun it's a it's been really rewarding to i guess through through their young like years so far I, i've been you know mostly like a, a self-employed business owner so yeah. they've been growing up in the brewery we've never really done any daycare or anything like that so um and don't worry, everyone. Listen, they're very well behaved in the brew for the most part. But, but yeah, they're 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 hanging out like at the bar, like with some crayons, and you know, just like this is where they've grown up. Like my wife is here working. She she runs our our brewery, so she's doing all the books, all the payroll, all the HR type of things. Um, I basically, you know, like took off like a year and a half. Um, after after I quit platform to just like figure out okay well how how can we get a, a loan to do this you know so it was like working with like bank and the sba to get a loan 
and get this whole place running. Yeah. And then essentially just handed off all the, those operations to her, which she was super reluctant about. Um, bless her heart. She has no experience in running a business of any, any kind, but I just knew like she has that mind very analytical yeah. and like detail oriented. And, you know, she wanted to be a part of this obviously. And it's like, she didn't have any interest in, in working in the brewery, working in the kitchen or behind the bar. I was like, oh, guess, guess what you get to do. <laughs> um, but she's been like phenomenal at it. And it's, it's been really cool to um, kind of see her growth uh, and everything she's learned for that. Um, so, yeah. So anyway, like we're kind of here all the time. Do the kids, are the, the kids are have the, been here. Are the boys old enough to kind of understand that it's your all's like the, it's the family's place? Yeah, uh, what they don't understand is when you go to another restaurant that it's not also our place and you can't just like <laughs> snap your fingers and somebody brings you an apple or you can't just like go around or like, you know, get out of your seat and like go wander off to the kitchen or something. That's where the, the challenge is. Yeah. So, yeah, they're a little spoiled in that that manner. Um, but it, it's been it's been pretty cool to to have the opportunity to to spend that much time with my kids, you know, as, as, as they're growing up, it's not like I'm kind of at work and come home and, and see them, you know, I've probably seen them throughout the day. They're getting older and in school now. So that's all changing. Yeah. Yeah. That's, it's, it's a cool uh, way to keep the family together. Right. And during the day. Yeah. A um, couple last things that you know, want to touch on as we start to sort of wrap this up. Um, I don't know that it was John Hall's intent that diversity become kind of a, a watchword and theme that's kind of going through these podcasts so far, but it's definitely been on um, something that almost everyone's talked about in one form or another, a big theme since episode one. For you, how and when do you think about diversity in the beer industry and like in what ways is the conversation around DEI and diversity uh, meaningful to you? Um, yeah, it's like, it's kind of like a hard one to, to touch on sometimes. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm half Japanese and I feel like in a lot of ways, my experiences, uh, you know, growing up and, um, you know, in, in the working world, like, I, I don't personally feel that, um, I don't, you know, like I, like, I don't feel that I've experienced a lot of hardships. So, yeah. so for one, like a lot of times like, you know, like, oh, we, we get lumped into like a minority owned business and, and that's, that's fine. But um, sometimes it's, 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 it's a weird personal quandary for me, whereas I almost feel like I'm not really like worthy of that designation that I haven't experienced a lot of these hardships and maybe I'm, maybe I'm blind to some of them, but at the end of the day, like, uh, there, there's certainly people who who have um, you know more struggles with that, and, and I don't feel like it's fair for me to get lumped into that. Um, but uh, you know, as, as far as just being like a business owner, um, part of what's always been important here is just like treating everybody with respect. So we don't really have uh, you know we're, we're a small company, but we don't have any, you know, programs or, or anything like really big, like touching points that I could be like, Oh, look, we're, we're doing this and this and this, like we have a pretty diverse staff. And at the end of the day, um, 
I don't know that we're going um, out of our way to to shape to shape that intentionally. It's mm-hmm. just it's it's been organic, and um, I think we're pretty conscious to to have good structure in place. Um, you know, being a small business, sometimes it's hard for if, if there is a problem, like like where does an employee turn to? Yeah, because if the problem is with me. There's not a lot of places to turn to, right? Um, because it kind of just all comes back to me, and that's that does not doesn't solve any problems. Um, so we've we've always had a worked with an extra. Um, it's like a PEO, you know. So they help us with a lot of our business things, yeah. Um, and they do that on a regular basis for us. But they also have a lot of other benefits that carry on to our staff. So there is like an outside HR uh, contact that we've always had in place. Um, so if if there is an issue that like can't really be resolved in house, um, you know that can always be contacted. Um, yeah, I feel uh, I feel really fortunate that we've had like through our five years of existence, just like a phenomenal staff, um, and it's it's got a whole range of everybody on it, and I love yeah. that. Yeah, I think, I mean, in the last episode, when Tanya Cornette asked me sort of a similar question, we ended up talking a little bit about like kind of, you know, you can't do anything until toxicity is gone, right? You have to have good leadership from the top and you have to have, I think that a lot of things come from that, right? Whether that be you personally or the entire kind of management team or whether that be two people or 15 people, and then you you know, getting the right people on the bus, getting the right people on the team just ends up promoting a culture that kind of is self-reinforcing in a positive way. And of course it can go the other direction too, if you, mm-hmm. uh, if things don't, if you'd hire poorly or if, you know, you yourself are not the most upstanding person. But I think that, you know, I imagine that a lot of the successes that you're talking about are due to just the culture that you and your wife have kind of promulgated to the, to the team. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think in any, any organization, it's, it's from the top down. So you know, it's, it's always going to trickle down. And, um, I've been pretty proud of, uh, just, yeah, the the culture we've been able to build here. Um, Yeah. It's one of respect and accountability. And, um, like our success would not be possible by any means without like having this amazing staff hundred percent. I think that's what in, in so many ways sets us above, um, you know, other, other places just are around. I'm not trying, you know, I'm not pointing out anyone else specifically, but that's been a huge driver in, in the success we've been able to have. Yeah. Speaking of success, you know, you're, you're seven years into Noble Beast now. Is that right? Or five uh, just over in? five. Five yeah, years in, five. sorry. Yeah. Five years into, to Noble Beast now. What does success look like for you guys in the, in the next handful of years? You know, I think uh, we've been growing just in-house fairly quickly, and we've never really been able to feel like we've had that moment to breathe and to look beyond these four walls, right? And I I think we're kind of hitting that spot um, where we can. So we don't have anything in the works, but it's just kind of a conversation that's getting a lot more uh, time these days. At the end of the day, like, you know, I'd love to, to maybe open up another smaller location, even be able to try and feed it some beer from here. 
Um, like, like another restaurant or another tap room or. Yeah. Yeah. Probably. Yeah. Probably keep, you know, another restaurant. Um, yeah. The, the production brewery kind of expansion just really doesn't appeal to me. And that, now that I've said that, watch it'll, it'll probably happen. Cause sometimes I, <laughs> I think, I think about it, but you know, at the end of the day, that's like, um, it's just never been like the big motivator. But I, yeah, know, I would love to kind of like start a new project. You know, it's it's the, the fun of building something and trying to make that succeed. I think that in an era when there's you know I, the brew pub has kind of fallen out of fashion uh, in in a lot of the country, I think that you're a a great advocate and champion for the for the traditional brew pub in a lot of ways. I mean, I think if people were to walk into Noble Beast and see the successes that you all have there, you, a lot more people would be persuaded to open restaurants and uh, to, to run great little breweries in, you know, restaurants with restaurants and kind of merge the two. Um, so I, I appreciate that like uh, a lot because we came from, I came from that background too. And I still, I'm still an advocate for those types of places. Yeah. I, like, you know, I, to me, it's, it's, it's kind of the best of, of both worlds. Um, obviously like, I don't know. It's just, it's how you, you set it all up. Like when we opened up our doors, the idea was that like, Oh, this is a tap room that has a small kitchen. And unfortunately that's how we built out some of our, our restaurant infrastructure and storage, <laughs> um, you know, needs. And, and actually in the first year it played out exactly kind of, as I forecasted, it was like 60% beer sales and 40% food. And that, that is totally flipped at this point. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I, yeah, I, I wouldn't do it any other way. I mean, everybody loves to eat. And, you know, when we're, when we're trying to figure out like, oh, what brewery we want to hit up, like, you know, food food's a big part of that. So. Yeah. yeah, I I agree. All right, last, last question for you here. This is a softball one though to finish up, which is where can people get your beer? After listening to this episode, if they haven't had it before, where could people, where should, where can people get it? Well, they're going to have to come right here to uh, beautiful Cleveland, Ohio, pop into the pub. Uh, we do do limited uh, mobile Canyon runs where we uh, slave away for the day and tear down the whole restaurant so we can fit a deep palletizer and a labeling machine right in the middle of the floor. Um, and then, so every, you know, six to eight weeks, you can find some of our cans out in the grocery stores and high class gas stations and things like that. But other than that, if you, if you want our beer, you got to come here. And, uh, it's, it's well worth the trip. I, uh, I found Cleveland to be far, far more charming, uh, than I expected. Noble Beast was a large part of that, but the whole city does have a, quite a bit to recommend. So I definitely encourage anyone who's, who's thinking about, uh, a weekend trip to, to go visit you. Well, Sean, thank you so much for spending the last hour chatting about Noble Beast and about your beer, about your history. Uh, Sean will be back on the next episode of the show as the host, having a conversation with a brewer of his choosing. That'll be on the air in two weeks, so make sure you tune in for that. Visit allaboutbeer.com and follow on social media. And to support journalism in the beer space, check out patreon.com slash allaboutbeer. I'm Ben Edmonds of Breakside Brewery. Thank you for listening to the Brewer to Brewer podcast. Cheers. This episode was brought to you by First Tea. First Tea delivers the ingredients and experience brewers need for delicious beers and innovative flavors. Flexible order sizes and direct from farm teas for your next brew. 
Find out more about First Tee by visiting blog.firsttee.com. That's blog.firsttee.com.